you know what I like? I like the conclusion of a book. I like making it as emotionally resonant as I possibly can. I want to write books that rip your heart out, that suck your soul and lash your libido, make you look at the world differently, and move you to tears at the end. For over three decades, James Elroy has been writing crime novels that gnaw at the guts, gaze deep into the void, and, yes, suck your soul. His L.A. Quartet, which included L.A. Confidential and The Black Dahlia, explored corruption, decadence, and human frailty in the City of Angels. Later, his gaze widened to take in the assassination of JFK, the Vietnam War, and the Nixon administration, as he turned over the rock of America to gaze in minute fascination at the scuttling things below. All this in prose so spare it reads like gunfire. For his latest series, Elroy has returned to L.A. with a new quartet. The second book, This Storm, was released earlier this year. I'm Augusta Machelari, and I'm delighted to say James Elroy joined me here in London on The Big Interview. Uh, James Elroy, welcome to The Big Interview. Oh, man, Augustine, what a blast to be here. It's so nice to have you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, man, Swank Marley Bone. Right off of Harley Street, all the doctor's offices. I could go over there and get some scripts for amphetamines and barbiturates. Man, I could fly. <laughs> Maybe later. Yeah! I went to New York recently. I went upstate to the Catskills, and I drove over Rip Van Winkle Bridge. Uh-huh. And I realized that Rip Van Winkle Bridge, named after the titular character of the Washington Irving story, right. reflected this kind of, this quality of folklore Rip Van Winkle is like a folk tale there. Yeah. But we know who wrote Rip Van Winkle. It was Washington Irving. He only right. wrote it a right. couple of hundred years ago. And it made me realize that America is kind of a self-mythologizing organ. A lot of great ways. artists came out of America. A lot of great composers, a lot of great musicians. Jazz was created in America. The hard-boiled crime novel came out of America, and wherever you got a lot of great artists, you got great storytellers, and great bullshitters, and great philanderers, and sometimes good art or great art results. But where do you fit into this country that makes myth in real time? Well, here's a quote from the great American humorist P.J. O'Rourke, and it's about America and Americans. Here it is. We're three-quarters grizzly bear and two-thirds car wreck and descended from a stock market crash on our mother's side. A rape and a mugging is our way of saying cheerio. When we snort coke in Houston, they lose their hats in Cap Antibes. And concludingly, Hell can't hold our sock ops. That's me. I'm a hard-charging, shit-kicking, American, male, born at mid-century, and I love to tell stories. The masculinity of the American male is uh, kind of changing, I think. But for you, it's... Tell me, tell me how you mean. I think that maybe the idea that success at work defined by competency, emotional insularity and strength, pit bulls... Oh, yeah. I love pit bulls, and I'm a gunman. I got a lot of guns. I feel like that's maybe no longer quite so in vogue as it has been, that people are trying to change the idea of what a man should be or could be. 
I don't know. I ignore the world at large. I have never owned a computer. I've never used a computer. I've written all 20 of my books by hand. I have a fax machine. I have a woman who types my books. I've never had a cell phone or logged onto a computer. I am woefully ignorant, and happily so, of the world as it is today. I love pit bulls. I love bull breed dogs. I own a 12-gauge pump shotgun. I own a titanium-plated 44 Magnum revolver and a 45 Colt automatic pistol 1911 that fires the 45 Colt ACP cartridge. I like guns. I love cops. I like the American military. I dig a good war. I dig a good invasion. I embody P.J. O'Rourke's quote. I can't tell you about American masculinity today. I've only got myself to look at. What do you like about all that stuff, though? What's so compelling about it for you? It, well, you just said it a second ago. It's competency. It's it's the force of arms, and it's it's the force of history. It's conspiracy. It's government collusion. It's great heroic deeds. It's the big frame-up. It's the big cover-up. It's the grand jury investigation, and it's the heart of police work. Let's talk about that kind of idea of collusion. I know that you say your books are highly moral, that they come from this mm -hmm. kind of theocratic place and that yeah. you reject the label of nihilism that's sometimes put on them. Uh -huh. You also place value in what you've described as, so bear with me, a sternly ordered society. Yeah. And I wonder where corruption fits into that. Is it I've an inevitability? Yeah, it is. Wherever you have aggregations of ambitious and self-interested men, you will have a level of corruption. Even though I'm personally appalled by it, I'm attracted to it. It's an intellectual and moral preoccupation with me. I would not frame someone for a crime they did not commit and railroad them into the green room at San Quentin Prison. But boy, do I sure as shit like writing about it. What is the magnetism of these bad things, of someone being made to look like a suicide in their jail cell or, as you say, framed for a crime they didn't commit? Right. What is it? What's so alluring about it? We understand as we grow into cognizance from childhood into adulthood that official versions of events may not necessarily be what really occurred. This happened to me when I was an early 10 years old on the occasion of my mother's murder, unsolved, in 1958. I can't pinpoint the exact moment that this revelation took hold but overall, it was, oh, yeah, the shit they're telling you may not be real. And closure is something that only happens in fiction, right? Yeah. In the crime novel, in the epic melding of the police novel, the crime novel, the historical novel, i.e., in my books, in my books alone, I have a debt to the reader to give you a solution to the crime and then to layer in the sense that the ramifications of this crime 
wherein motive, the motive of the killer, is entirely explicated. Nevertheless, all of this will continue off on into infinity. Mm. When you have a sternly ordered society that at least superficially functions according to the best interests of most people living in it, mm-hmm. and it turns around and interns a sizable minority of the population. Yeah. yeah, we're talking about the Japanese internment. We're talking about the Japanese internment, which is in the fantastic This Storm. Mm-hmm. How do you respond to a state that does that? Let's, let's think retrospectively here and let's put ourselves in the mindset of 1941 war is inevitable there's land lease the japanese imperial forces have been going crazy in the pacific and it's the time of the blitz here you know the blitz in britain here the the german bombers coming in killed 75,000 british people. Let's think about that. Let's think about America on the cusp of war. We're we're getting into it. It's a fait accompli. We'll get there sooner or later. So the Japanese have pulled some of the most heinous shit on God's green earth. In in China, the rape of Nanking, fathers at gunpoint forced to rape their own daughters, little children thrown out of airplanes at 5,000 feet. So the Chinese... And Chinatown adjoins Japantown in downtown Los Angeles. They don't like the Japanese. The Japanese don't like the Chinese. It's a long-standing racial, ethnic enmity. And the whites are suspicious of all Japanese. So then the fateful day, Pearl Harbor, bam. Well, Franklin Roosevelt had sent a man, an emissary named Munson, to the various naval districts in California in the months preceding the Pearl Harbor attack. And he reported back to say that these are very loyal Americans, you know, compliantly, passively, happy to be in America, be they Japanese-born or be they native-born. But FDR ignored all that, and the internment went on. It was strategically untenable, even though we were also going to war with Germany and Italy to intern German-Americans and Italian-Americans because they were not readily identifiable in the manner that the Japanese were because they were Asians and they tended to live in enclosed pockets. You and I could have been mistaken for a German or an Italian and dropped in the clink. And so this was an injustice and an American injustice. Why mince words? It was not the Holocaust and it was not the Soviet gulag. It was the wrong thing to do. And there was a redress of this great injustice from Presidents Reagan and George W. Bush, an apology to the people who were imprisoned decades later. It's also the stuff of great drama. So in this storm here, you have a a Japanese-American forensic chemist who works for the Los Angeles Police Department. He is the only Japanese on the L.A. cop payroll, Hideo Washita, and he's trying to keep his own ass and the asses of his mother and brother out of Manzanar, which is largely the story of this storm. 
You have got such a compelling grasp on history, and you said you live in the past. Yeah. When you're researching these books, you know, I know that you use microfiche, you go back through papers. Yeah. Do you use, I've spoken to a few people recently who have written books about collecting historical objects, and they talk about the incredible potency of picking these objects up and with a small bit of imagination suddenly being catapulted back in time, having this kind of sensation of time travel wash over them. Mm-hmm. And I wondered for you how that imaginative mechanism works. Are you just looking at documents? Are you looking at stories? Or do you need objects as well? I don't need objects. I'm not a collector of objects. I have always been obsessed with history. I've always looked at magazines and enjoyed looking at the pictures. From the time of my early youth on, I have read about history. As a kid, I always had my snaps stuck into stacks of Life magazine from the World War II, post-war, pre-war era, the great crimes, the great battles, the great scandals. I love all that stuff. Absolute factual accuracy means next to nothing to me in the writing of my epic fiction. It's an extrapolative spark point for me. It's where I can go crazy and start making it all up. As I adhere to the facts of history, as I know them, in the broader rather than the more detailed facts. You've got a lot of characters in across this quartet as well in the preceding L.A. quartet. Some of them crop up again. Some of them have bigger parts here than they did then. How do you keep this pantheon alive? Where are you storing them all? And how do you sustain your interest in them? It's a developed instinct because I've been doing this for 40 years now. I also write extraordinarily detailed outlines that lay out the scope of the book, the plots of the book, the intersecting love stories, the intersecting crimes, the historical perspective in extremely minute detail. That's my diagram for writing the book. I love the idiom of the time. I love racial invective. I love Yiddish. I love black hepcat jazz patois. I love alliteration. I love spelling hard C words with a K. I love police abbreviations, penal code numbers. Even if I don't know the crime, the numbers designate. I love the the talk. I love all of it. And it's something that I think the reader can feel radiate out of the page. Yeah. How do you stop it from tipping over into shtick, though? Do you have to go back and sort of de James Elroy some of your paragraphs sometimes? Or do you just... I add words, I subtract words till I think it's perfect. People in individual scenes, they have to talk off the mark. It has to sound improvised, even as the basic gist of an individual scene is to exposit necessary information. And I've made myself, just by force of will and concentration, a master this. So on the back of this book, Joyce Carol Oates says you're the American Dostoevsky. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered whether you think time in jail is important to a writer. Well, you know, my time in jail was, it was brief. I mean, there, there were a number of offenses. It was all the L.A. County jail system. It wasn't the big house, Folsom, 
San Quentin, the infamous Big Q. I didn't go to the green room because, of course, I live to write all these books. Minor misdemeanor offenses, minor jolts in the L.A. County jail system. As I've often said, you get to what was then called the New County Jail, and this is the late 60s up to 75 when you know, I started cleaning up and didn't go to jail any longer. It was invariably six men in a four-man cell, two stupid white guys, two stupid Mexican guys, and two stupid black guys talking shit all day, every day about their boss criminal exploits and their numerous foxy chicks, all of which was bullshit. In other words, we were a bunch of harmless dipshits who were dangerous only to ourselves. I suppose it gives you some, you know, it's the first time that maybe one might have a realization that this kind of ostensibly patrician state that has thus far educated you, given you a library, might not always necessarily have your best interests at heart. I never had a grievance with society. Never. I always loved the Los Angeles Police Department. They kicked my ass on three notable occasions, and they helped put me on the road to goodness, honesty, and rectitude. We were speaking a minute ago about the detailed synopses that you write when you're coming up with one of your novels. At what point are you happiest in the process of of getting into a novel? Is it when you're researching? Is it when you pick an era? Is it when a character speaks to you and you realize that this is a starting point? Characters don't speak to me. Don't trust any author who tells you that his character's speak to him or do things that he didn't intend. That's disingenuous horseshit. What that person is really telling you is that he wrote himself into a point where he had various narrative options and the one that he ultimately chose surprised him. I don't like research. I don't do extensive research. I hire people who compile fact sheets and chronologies because I know what the book will be going in. I have a good, good idea, and I need specific gaps in my own information filled in. There's that. You know what I like? I like the conclusion of a book. I like making it as emotionally resonant as I possibly can. I want to write books that rip your heart out, that suck your soul and lash your libido, make you look at the world differently, and move you to tears at the end. If I'm not doing that, I'm not doing my job. Does Shio Hammett, a big influence? Yeah, he's the the father of the American hard-boiled novel. You wrote about him. You raised the uh, idea of America uh, as a land grab, uh-huh, as uh-huh. described through his work. Was that truer in L.A. than elsewhere? I don't know certain things about yeah. L.A. history, like the, the water stuff that informed the overrated turkey movie Chinatown, the, the Mulhollands, the, the stealing water from L.A. from the Owens Valley or where the hell they stole it from. I know absolutely jack shit about that. 
You think Chinatown's overrated? Yeah, I think it sucks. I think LA Confidential sucks, taken from my great novel of the same name. Great crime movies are very, very far and few between. Cinematic adaptations of books, uh-huh. it's always to the benefit of the film, but to the detriment of the book, isn't it's it? It's not to the detriment of the book because, as James M. Cain said, the book's there on a shelf and it's inviolate. You know, you can't touch it, you know, in any way. I'll tell you a, a couple of things as pertains to my career. It's this. Okay, L.A. Confidential. I think it's about as deep as a tortilla. Let's put that aside. And I particularly dislike the performances in the film. They're impotent to me. Okay. And you know what? I wrote the book. So that gives me some authority in this matter. Put LA Confidential critical reception of it, which was very, very generous, overly generous aside. That roundly praised award-winning motion picture, right? 1997, 2006, the execrably reviewed box office flop, The Black Dahlia. The box office flopped the Black Dahlia, sold 50 times as many books for me in seven weeks as L.A. Confidential has in 22 years. So I believe that movies only exist for novelists to serve as a source of income and serve as a vehicle to enhance readership. You've also said about your relationship to culture. Uh You say, I hate imagery. And then you talk about how... To avoid imagery, to avoid billboards, you'll drive oh, yeah, through neighborhoods, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. which makes sense to me. But I wondered about that because I feel like you don't hate imagery. I mean, your books are very rich, incredibly visually rich. I'm talking about the bombardment of images that yeah. culture imposes upon you. Snippets of music, television, adverts. Bad movies, going to a movie theater and seeing a half an hour of previews for jive movies that you'll never see. But what is it about the pop culture of the past that's more intoxicating? Is it the years of distance that kind of make it more resonant for you? I wouldn't even call it pop culture. The world looked different then, and I can't really tell you what hooked me on history at the outset, other than it was an escape. And it was an escape that honed my curiosity and and ultimately informed my worldview and informed the books that I write. You still live in L.A.? I moved out of L.A., In 1981, I lived in suburban New York, suburban Connecticut, Kansas City, Carmel, California, San Francisco, back to L.A. for nine years, and now I live in Denver, Colorado. Okay, so more peaceful. It's it's not that. It's just, it's that. You know, L.A. is where I go when women divorce me, and I got back four years ago with my second ex-wife, Helen Canode. She said, hey, fucker. You know, I move three times for you, you move once for me. Hence Denver, Colorado. How close is, is LA when you do go there to the one that you write about? It's unrecognizable. And you I don't, don't scratch the surface and there's something there? No, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't look the same way. The places of my past are largely gone. I'm curious about performance. When you decided what you wanted to keep I'm not interested in what you keep private I'm interested in when you decided as a writer that 
you aren't just some person who turns out books and then comes out on stage and talks about them in a dry way, maybe even says yeah. that their characters talk to them, yeah. but rather embody your books. Yeah, I do. I embody my books. Okay. You know, I'm a big, tall, overweening guy. I'm an American in the P.J. O'Rourke. We're three-quarters car wreck and two-thirds grizzly bear and descended from a stock market crash on our mother's side. And I'm staked to a post. I'm a pit bull staked to a lawn post while I write the books. And then they cut the lead on the stake, and I can go roam free. I can come here to Britain, and I love Britain. I love it passionately. And talk to people who are foreigners to me, but who speak the same language as I do. And in fact, the British created it. The Americans did not. And at one point, America, of course, was a British colony. And I'm such a law and order guy. You know, my ancestors, by the way, were loyalists to loyalists to, to Britain who didn't like the idea of independence from Britain or so my my cousins in Wisconsin have, have told me. And I get to go out and perform, and I love to perform. You also love the rain. I love the rain. Yeah. And the early part of this storm, part one of this storm, is called rain, and it's always raining. You know, winter is the most beautiful time in L.A., and I love depicting it in this book. How is that, that atmosphere? It's so intoxicating. The way that you draw on everything that we've been talking about and distill it through the jive talk that you also love. Yeah. What's the connection between that and L.A.? What's the West Coast kind of gothic key that binds it all together? It's it's the idea of memory. It's my acute memory. I can give you an example of this. It's a little off the mark. In 87... I had a girlfriend named Glenda, and I had a plan. The plan was to marry Glenda and have a brood of daughters, three daughters, and get a pad in Connecticut and have a couple of pit bulls, too. Two pit bulls, three daughters, Glenda. Glenda had other ideas about this and dumped my ass. So I went to a, she lived in the West Village, and I went to a, coffee joint, an Italian joint on Bleecker Street, and I had some cookies, some pine nut cookies and a quadruple espresso. And I thought, well, you know what, shit, it didn't work out. But, you know, that's life. I was 39 at the point, and I'm 71 now. So that's 24 years ago. And I thought, you know, when you're 50, Elroy, 55, 60, 70, God forbid, you won't even remember Glenda's name. Well, bullshit. I remember every moment with her and every moment at the coffee shop. There is, for me at least, no cessation of memory, no diminishing of the force of my personal history and the history of my hometown, L.A., and the history of my country, America. It all lives within me, and I am in a rage to write it out to the absolute limits of my artfulness and my native God-given talent. And that's fundamentally it. That's why, that's why you write. You want to know why I write? This is a stock performance closer at my readings. 
in my craft or sullen art, exercised in the still night when only the moon rages and the lovers lie abed with all their griefs in their arms, I labor by singing light, not for the strut and trade of charms upon the ivory stages, but for the common wages of their most secret heart. Not for the proud man apart do I write on these spindrift pages, but for the lovers, their arms round the griefs of the ages, who pay no praise or wages, nor heed my craft or art. Dylan Thomas. James Elroy. Thank you so much for joining us. All right. My thanks to James Elroy. His latest book, This Storm, is published by William Heinemann. The big interview was produced and edited by Yelene Goffin. I'm Augustin Machelari. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.